live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas studios, this is the Press Box. Bitch-ass white boy, Tyler Bischoff. It was reported that the Cleveland Indians have decided to remove the term Indian from their name. And Adam Candy. Yet we're cool calling the only black people in Utah the Jazz. On ESPN Las Vegas. Adam Candy in for another day as Ed Graney, we assume, is traveling back from New Orleans this morning. Big comeback for the Kansas Jayhawks to win the national championship yesterday. At least they made it fun. The first bite. The first bite is still unsponsored, so it's brought to you by the Unnecessary Roughness podcast. Did Kansas pull off the biggest comeback in title game history? Is that what you're supposed to read? Was it? I think you missed the word how. How did Kansas pull off the biggest comeback in title game history? Because I can say, yes, they did pull off the biggest comeback in title game history. They were down 15 at half. They trailed by 16 at one point in the first three. half. And that is the biggest comeback in a national championship game in college basketball history. They outscored North Carolina 47 to 29 in the second half. Uh, Adam, what do you think was the biggest reason why Kansas came back to win last night? I know Kansas fans don't want to hear this, but because North Carolina was beaten to hell, uh, <laughs> Kansas did what it should do against a beaten up eight seed that you and I agree is probably more like a beaten up four seed. But Kansas played fantastic defense against a crippled North Carolina team in the second half and came back to win this game. If you look at the stats, you wouldn't think that Kansas played a championship level game, right? You only have two players with an offensive rating uh, above 100, and one of them was not Ochai Abaji. Uh, Ochai Abaji was rough last night outside of maybe the first five minutes of that game, and yet Kansas was still able to get enough balance up and down the roster to get this victory five players and double figures actually the same as North Carolina so I don't know Tyler did you see something else well on the idea that North Carolina was beat up they somehow had three guys roll their ankles in the same game and obviously uh Baycott came into that game with a rolled ankle was playing on one but Caleb Love rolled his ankle just by himself like he wasn't cutting anywhere he was just sort of running back down the floor there was no contact and just rolled his ankle Brady Manick appeared to roll his ankle as well now that was on the last play of the game uh but he also got hit in the head twice in that game I don't know that I've seen oh and I can't forget uh Puff Johnson uh, getting the wind knocked out of him that was very strange because all of a sudden he's just down on the ground like he can't breathe so got the wind I I have not seen a team suffer that many injuries in a game and a lot of them kind of self-inflicted like even armando bicot was driving to the rim like he, he just rolled his ankle again like it's not like he didn't step on somebody's foot or whatever like it was bizarre in the fact that there were so many kind of out of nowhere ankle rolls or out of or get the wind knocked out of you that didn't really happen because of uh, an actual contact play or a collision or anything like that and i don't know that that's the main reason but it certainly is a big reason as to why all of a sudden North Carolina couldn't do very much in the second half so I have to tell you how sad I was watching that Baycott drive honestly as someone who just wanted to see an outstanding game watching 
Armando Baycott roll his ankle on what could have been the capper on one of the all-time performances in the NCAA tournament felt like it cheated the kid. It cheated us out of seeing something truly spectacular other than, wow, Kansas didn't collapse in another big spot, right? First, Because that's where we were headed. Yeah, first player to have a double-double in all six uh, NCAA tournament games. And, hell, he had one in the first half alone last night. Didn't have to play the second half to get his double-double. It was, I mean, it was a tremendous performance from Baycott. And on the ankle that we saw him leave the court with and was obviously bothering him pregame. I mean, it was that was the reports that in the warm-ups he did not look like he was 100%. And yet he still, after the first four or five minutes of that game, looked dominant for a good stretch of that game and then rolls his ankle and in the final minute and kind of cost a cost North Carolina. He probably would have had a layup. Would he have made it? Maybe not. They didn't make many layups in the second half, but at least a shot at scoring there. And then you give up the ball the other way, which by the way, on that part, uh, do we give Bill Self credit for good sportsmanship because he had his players pull up when it was a five on four? Is he dumb because he had his players pull up? Or my theory is that he was more worried about burning clock than actually trying to score despite having a five on four in the final minute. He absolutely was trying to burn clock because okay. he did the exact same thing on the previous possession. So Bill Self wanted to make sure that North Carolina had as little time left as possible because he knew at that point of the game, North Carolina was actually playing better than Kansas. So he wanted to end that thing as soon as possible. Tyler, there are some things that just scream at you from the box score after this game. Uh, North Carolina out-rebounded Kansas by 20. How many times do you lose a game that you out-rebound the opponent by 20, including Kansas having 27 defensive rebounds and North Carolina having 24 offensive rebounds alone? I <laughs> It's amazing to look at the stat sheet for this game. You'll see Kansas making five more shots, ultimately. North Carolina going to the line eight more times, having 10 more points at the free throw line. If you just took the final scores away and looked at some of the things that are, you know, Ken Palm four factors, you would say, oh, yeah, North Carolina won that thing running away. Obviously, they did not. The biggest problem is North Carolina could not make the majority of those second and sometimes third shots they got. I think they scored on their first uh, six offensive rebounds. They scored eventually on that possession. But, like, you look at the shooting numbers in this game, Baycott was 3 of 13. R.J. Davis was 5 of 17. Caleb Love was 5 of 24. Caleb Love was 1 of 8 from 3. Davis was 0 of 5 from 3. Like, Caleb Love knocking down tough threes is a big reason why they beat UCLA. It's a big reason why they beat Duke. Like, that's a reason why they're here. And he made one three in that game and was five of 24. And honestly, I'd say, yeah, the one of eight hurts from three. He couldn't finish at the rim in that game either. Like, he couldn't. He got to the rim quite a bit. Got to the paint a lot in the second half, but could not finish. I think, like, if you're North Carolina, you look back at that and you think, wow, we we're like five shots away from winning that game in the last minute and not having just, you know, knock down some free throws and it's over because they miss layups and they miss threes that I think they'll look back and say, yeah, we, we normally make those. Those normally go in for us. North Carolina was up 69-68 with a minute left in that game. They had it. It was absolutely right there. And then you saw the impact of the Baycott injury because Bill Self, if we're going to give him credit for anything, realized immediately, oh, Baycott's out of the game. Oh, go to McCormick now. 
Uh, and they got the ball inside to McCormick and Brady Manick, who I think one more elbow and he would have been a TKO for the night, uh, was not able to stop him in the lane. And so McCormick, who, again, no Kansas player had a really outstanding day overall. But if you want to talk about which Kansas player had the biggest impact on the game, it was David McCormick when he was in there. And the only reason he didn't have bigger numbers was because he was limited to 29 minutes by getting in foul trouble. And I have to say that to me, Tyler, if if you're going to drag Hubert Davis for something coming out of this game, uh, it's not that wild interview he did with Tracy Wilson. That was remarkable he, he looked like he was trying to sell something to us what you're going to drag hubert davis for was they couldn't get the ball inside in the second half and they needed to be able to go inside more and challenge mccormick and challenge lightfoot because when they built the huge lead going into halftime it was because they got the kansas bigs in foul trouble in the first half and they opened up the lane and they didn't have to worry about shooting threes because baycott had room to operate inside the guards had room to get downhill and they didn't do any of that in the second half. When they needed an easy basket to slow down the Kansas run at the beginning of that half, there was nothing that they could do. One more thing, one more piece of credit for Bill Self. Tell me what you think about this, Tyler. The first play of the second half being a dunk to get the crowd back into it the actually feels like low-key. Low-key, getting the crowd back into that game around a bunch of 18-, 19-year-olds felt like it mattered. Well, I'm scarred by watching UNLV basketball, who unofficially was the worst alley-oop throwing team in college basketball this season. Uh, That was a wildly impressive pass because it was a one-handed pass to get the alley-oop up there. But yes, I think all coaches should draw up the alley-oop play at a halftime. Like that should just be a given, right? You get 20 minutes to figure it out, draw up an alley-oop play. I think you draw up something for an easy basket. So yeah, if if it's going to be your 6'11 block of granite rolling to the hole, yeah, I like that play. I'll I'll give Bill Self credit as well because the other key to the second half is they got Christian Brown going pretty much by posting up on Caleb Love. Like they just decided, and maybe because he had a rolled ankle too, but they just decided that Caleb Love's not going to be able to guard Christian Braun. So let's get Christian or Brown near the basket and and get him scoring over Caleb Love because Caleb Love's not going to do anything. And they got five baskets that way inside in the second half. So they there were certainly some important adjustments because the other part of North Carolina not being able to score in the second half, they got nothing off of ball screens in the second half because they were getting a very hard hedge from North Carolina. And for whatever reason, whether it's R.J. Davis or Caleb Love, neither one could make the pocket pass. Neither one could do it. But no, Tyler, I'm going to tell you why they didn't make the pocket pass. There was no one to pass it to. Did you watch Baycott on those screens? Baycott wasn't rolling. Baycott wasn't moving. Baycott would set the screen and stand there. I think we started to see the toll of the whole thing in the second half. You know how it is with a rolled ankle, where if you actually have to sit down after you've gotten it hot, it gets cold again. I think we saw that a little bit with Baycott in the second half, where he was dominant in the first half with that double-double. And then in the second half, the guy wasn't moving, so that pick-and-roll was useless. So the criticism of Hubert Davis should be that he didn't leave Baycott out at halftime to just run laps around the court while he went into the locker room and talked to everybody else? I think that's exactly <laughs> it. I think word for word, you just said it correctly. Which, no, if you're going to criticize uh, North Carolina for something, for Hubert Davis, criticize Hubert Davis for not recruiting a deep enough team to where he played 20 total minutes off the bench. Puff Johnson played 18, Justin McKay played two. 
All right, give me give me a ranking here. Which of these um, blown leads, blown game leads, blown series leads is the worst, and which one to the least worst here? So we have this loss, biggest title game deficit uh, overcome by Kansas, North Carolina blowing it. The Falcons blowing the 28-3 lead in the Super Bowl. The Warriors blowing the 3-1 finals lead to LeBron and the Cavs. Or our very own Golden Knights blowing a 3-0 lead in Game 7 with less than 10 minutes to go to the Sharks. Bless you, child, for not including the Yankees blowing a 3-0 lead to eh, the Red we won't Sox do that in the you. American we won't League do Championship that to That's like a long time ago. That's when the Yankees used to be good. Fair. You can't, you know, it's it's like Jason Veritek telling Alex Rodriguez we don't throw at 260 hitters. So, all right. Uh, of all of those, whew, man, it's the Falcons. It, it, do you know how hard it is to give up 25 points and a half without scoring? It, it, it Just remarkable effort by the Atlanta Falcons to blow that lead. Uh, you have LeBron against you with the Warriors. Uh Basketball's a game of runs. You're going to give up a run. Yes, that you know you don't often give up a 15-point lead at halftime, but it happens. And with the Golden Knights, I mean, whether it was a major or whether it wasn't a major, you end up playing shorthanded all that time. It's a lot easier to blow a three-nothing lead. I will say the least, uh, the least of all these, the wor- the ones that should feel the worst or the best about it, North Carolina. I don't think that last night. Yeah, it's the biggest in title game history, but I don't think it's a huge deal that they blew that. I would put the Golden Knights in there at third because dumb sport. Yeah, maybe don't, you know, give up four goals on one power play, but it happened. Uh, I would say the Warriors is worse uh, simply because it's a number of games and that would be the best team in NBA history if they had won that series. They just finished a 73-win season. If they beat the Cavaliers in five, six, or even seven, that's the best team in NBA history, and they blew it. The only reason... That you, the only reason that I would consider putting the Falcons ahead of the Warriors is because the Warriors actually won other titles and the Falcons haven't been anywhere close. Right. No, you would have changed the, the trajectory of an entire franchise if the Falcons win that, as opposed to, you know, the Warriors we all still look at as an all time great team, regardless. It's a 73 win regular season. But the Falcons, that, that is a generation of pain for anybody in Georgia. All right. Coming up next. We'll jump into some NBA. Like I said, it's, it's out of my control. If it happens, great. Uh, if it doesn't, I, I don't know what I had to do at this point. Uh, you know, at this point, I feel like, you know, they hate me. The standard for, you know, guys in Philly or for me is different than the standard than everybody else. It's the Press Box with Graney and Bischoff on ESPN Las Vegas featuring Adam Candy. Ed Graney out at the Final Four, presumably coming back today. Adam Candy in in place of Ed today. Adam, if you are picking one player from last night's game for an NBA team, who are you taking? Who? Man, it's still Akbaji for me. he didn't play like it last night overall, but the combination of what he can do getting downhill and the defense, it's got to be a a Baji in the end. I think he probably needs a little bit more on his frame, but I worry that Baycott isn't going to be able to finish consistently. I worry that McCormick is too limited overall. The guards in general are too small. So for me, it, it, it's gotta be, uh, it's gotta be a Baji. You know what was incredible about McCormick? 
he can't turn over his right shoulder and finish with his left hand. I mean, he doesn't have to <laughs> at this level, right? Like, it's enough. <laughs> Who's used to seeing a post-up game anymore anyway? That's fair. But I think the one time that he turned over his right shoulder to go left, he ended up underneath the basket. Like, because for the entire game, Baycott and even Manic down there, they just played him to his to his left shoulder. They basically were saying, if you're going to try to turn over your left and shoot with your right hand, you're going to have to go through my entire body. We're going to give you the other side. If you want to turn the other way, absolutely go for it. We will see you. We, we will give you that left-handed hook shot or left-handed layup. And he only tried it once, and he ended up stuck under the basket. He could not do it. Um, Abaji's the the ultimate answer there because it's not just the ability to get to the rim and the size. Uh, he shot 40% from three this year, which was up from what he's done in the past, but that's that's a good combination of skills. The main problem, though, is that he's he's a senior. Like, it's there's a... Basically, you don't really tend to draft guys that have been in college for that long because you're they're, they're upside. The amount of time you might have a good, productive NBA player decreases quite a bit the older you are when you get drafted in the NBA. It, it was a, I mean, that was an NCAA championship game with, there's a chance we look back and there's not like a legitimate NBA player that played in that NCAA title game. I think Abaji's a first round, projected first round pick. But outside of that, is nobody for that North Carolina team is projected to get drafted, are they? I mean, you're looking at some guys projected to the second round. You asked me yeah. yesterday about Caleb Love. He's got a second round, uh, high second round tag on him. That game last night's not going to help a whole lot because of the decision making. But I think with Abaji, I don't know that the age is going to hurt him, Tyler. I think you're going to find a team because of what the skill set is and because of where he might go. I think you're going to see him as a late first round pick where maybe he doesn't become, I, th- I should say, at worst, a late first round pick who becomes you know, sort of the Trevor Ariza archetype of a three and D guy, because I think he can do both pretty effectively at the NBA level. Yeah. And the old guy that got drafted recently, that's been good was Halliburton. So it's not a, it's not a complete, you know, death knell to somebody if you get drafted after you've been in college for four years, but it's not usually what NBA teams look for. Oh, speaking of, by the way, did you see who made it into one shining moment? With UNLV ties. Oh, only one? Did did Beard not make it? No, Beard didn't make it this year, but oh. Caleb Grill sure as they hell did. did. That's right. Caleb, Caleb Grill. Grill was in one shining moment. He better be. He better be. I'd be I'd be uh saving that video however I could. All right. A little bit of NBA here. Um actually let's do this. Your favorite topic. Ben Simmons is not gonna play in the play in rounds of the NBA playoffs. Hasn't played this entire year. Don't you have more to say about Ben Simmons? I do, and if oh. you tune into the uh, the Lotus <laughs> Plus Plus subscription, you can get all of my thoughts on Ben Simmons. Me just yelling into a webcam for ten straight minutes. So, the NBA did not play yesterday. How nice of them to not play games on the same night of the national championship game. But that means we basically get an entire day, no changes in the standings. If we're looking at it right now, in the East, Miami would be the one. Boston the two, Milwaukee the three, Philly the four, Chicago the five, and then Toronto the six. Of in the when you look at the East, are there any teams that you think need to have a different seed than what they have right now? Particularly when you look at the Nets potentially as an eight seed playing Miami, or maybe a first round matchup having to go to Toronto, where you might not have vaccinated players. Is there anybody in the East you look at and say if they can improve or maybe get a little bit worse with their seed? they actually improve their chances of winning an NBA title. Let me read you some scores. 
103-96. Those are the three Toronto Raptors victories over the Milwaukee Bucks this year. So if I'm Milwaukee and I have to deal with a team that I have not beaten in the regular season this year, I want out of the three real fast because not only do I have to deal with that, but then I have Boston in the second round as well. So it's unlikely that Milwaukee can move up uh, all the way to the one, but they certainly need to try if they can. Would they be better off falling to the four? Do you like the idea of Chicago in the first round and then Miami in the second round better? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh absolutely. Love that. No, no, no one should want any part of Boston right now. If Robert Williams is able to make it back for at least the second round, because if they stay in that two and they get Cleveland in the first round, I mean, the Cavs have fallen in the tank in the second half. So that's great for for Boston. But I would absolutely rather go against Miami if I were Milwaukee. I love when there is incentive to lose at the end of the season to get a worse seed. Uh, I find that very enjoyable, and maybe that is where Milwaukee stands. Um, in the West, all right, let me ask you this first. Do you believe either Dallas or Denver could beat Phoenix in the second round? No. Okay, so the intrigue in the West is primarily who wins the 2-3 matchup between the Grizzlies and the Warriors and has a shot to take down Phoenix. I My heart wants it to be Memphis. I don't know if that's smart or not, but that's the team I want to see like coming out of the West because John ja Morant is fun. So I want it to be Memphis, but I, I don't actually think it is. I think the Warriors win that series. So I think if you get Memphis, here's what you get. You get one of those epic... Jordan against the Pistons kinds of stories, right? Which is fun, right? I remember I remember watching those and thinking, wow, something's coming here. Like this is this is going to be amazing when when the guy finally breaks through. And that would be Memphis against Phoenix this year. They're not ready. They're not ready to do it on that level quite yet. And I think they're going to get there because if Golden State gets through the first round, and they should, right now they're projected to play Utah and Utah is just a limited team overall. If they get through that first round, I have no idea how healthy Steph Curry is right now, right? We're just kind of hoping to see Steph Curry in the playoffs. And, you know, I don't need to tell you about what that means to Golden State. But on the other side, I think this Memphis team has the juice to get through just about anybody except Phoenix. All right, so it's Phoenix's to lose in the West. I think yesterday you said we've been disrespecting them. I'm going to keep disrespecting. They're them. They're a 62 win team. I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep doing it and say they don't get out of the West. Give me, give me the, give me the uh, Grizzlies. That's my, that's what I'm cheering oh, for. Oh. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm let, now making my uh, pick. Let it be fun. Oh, without question, let it be fun. But look at the rest of this Western Conference. All right, there's Memphis. There's sort of a beaten up Golden State team, a one player Dallas, a one player Denver. Utah, and then I'm going to tell you what. Here's the one team that actually scares me a little bit. Minnesota, right? Does, isn't, isn't Minnesota kind of junior Memphis a with, a bunch of, with a bunch of young, brash stars who don't know any better? They're just not quite as talented. But Minnesota is a team that I think could cause a lot of problems. I think if they get Memphis, though, they draw the absolute worst possible <laughs> matchup because it's like looking in the mirror and seeing Big Brother. And Memphis is going to the NBA Finals because I don't want to watch the Suns anymore. Coming up next, David Roth joins the show.
We are on month we one. We don't remember. Dishwasher watch. David Roth from Defector is with us on the press box. Subscribe to the distraction on Stitcher and use the promo code distract for a free month of Stitcher premium. Uh, help us out, David. How many months has it been since your dishwasher has been functional? Oh, I, I stopped counting a while back. Uh, I had a dishwasher, and I know it was definitely working in 2020, and there were parts of 2021 where it was working well. Uh, I, there was some progress this week. So the new we have a new Super, which is good, and uh, it seems like there's a, a decent chance that um, he actually has an electrician who's like his guy that I can use, which is, again, how this stuff works. Like, you need to get somebody that, like, Whatever they went to the superintendent academy together, and he's like, "I can vouch for Vin. He's a good fellow. He's not going to screw you over." And so, like, it seems like there's some progress there because, like, the other list that they had is all these dudes that are just like, "Yeah, I, I always get lost on the way to that building." And just like clearly wanted nothing to do with it for some reason. So we'll see how this goes. Uh, you have uh, lost all of these questions that I have asked you with your dishwasher, but uh, I got another one for you. What happens first? Uh, you mm-hmm. have a functioning dishwasher, or Jacob Degrom makes a start in the regular season. So this puts me on the clock. Uh, so it's two months. I'm not, I'm going to go ahead and say that this one is going to be close. Maybe I'm being optimistic. Um, after all, this is I've been told over and over again the sort of fix that takes about 30 minutes for an electrician to do once they're able to get in the building. Uh, obviously, it takes longer for a scapular stress reaction to um, recover, but like. At the very least, I think now we have, I have a timetable on DeGrom, you know, and so that's like four months, or four weeks of rest, four weeks of ramping up. I feel like that is roughly the amount of time it's going to take for me to get an electrician to return my calls, come to my apartment and put a socket in the wall. So uh, let's see. I, I, I'm not going to commit to anything yet, but I think this one could be close. I might win this one. I mean, it kind of feels as though both of these are, you know, stories that should have hope. But really, if we sit here and think critically about it, it's probably not going to happen. Yeah. I, I'm just happy that I'm not counting on the Mets medical staff to get a dishwasher into my, my building. Like, it's not like I, I think it's clear at this point it's a matter of public record how I feel about the uh, co-op board and the general quality of electricians who are willing to visit this building. But uh, it's still better than the guys that um, worked on Jed Lowry's lower body such that both of his knees stopped working entirely. How many starts do you think the Mets actually get out of DeGrom and Scherzer this year? So Scherzer, I think, is going to be fine. I think uh, it seems like now, although earlier today he was saying, you know, I'll pitch on Saturday, which is not when they wanted him to pitch, but it's close, you know, because it's like Saturday of this week. Um, But he is apparently, the last thing I saw before I got on the phone with you guys is that he's throwing a bullpen session in Port St. Lucie but it's like in an enclosed space being patrolled by security guards so no one can see what he's doing in there. So I don't know what happens. Like if he comes out and he's just, he is RoboCop and everybody's just supposed to not comment on it, then like I suppose that's possible. It's the Mets. Could go any direction. DeGrom, I'm hoping for 20 starts now, uh, which I guess was my hope in the beginning. It's just that at this point they're going to have to happen consecutively because I don't really think he's going to pitch till June. So it's really David, it's hard with him though, like because I I feel like he looks so good in spring training, and this isn't an elbow or a shoulder thing. It just feels like it's ominous, you know, like weird injuries in uh, like March and April is not what you want. Do you feel like that that the Steve Cohen Mets 
are kind of on the path to become the Mikhail Prokhorov Nets right now. Like you got its big brash talking owner saying we're going to come in and do this, 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 and that, and yet you know there's just constantly the you know anti rabbit's foot hanging over them. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a really dark comparison, but I think it, it oh, makes yeah. some sense because it's like so you're talking about like when they got like Paul Pierce and KG at like the very end of their career. So I'm saying like, like they you know, they go together, all in, it's going to happen, and, right? Like, yeah. Right, and all those guys, you're just noticing that they get, like, handed a Metamucil by some dude on the sidelines every time they come out of the game. You're like, not normal. Should be happening. The, um, in this case, I think that most of the moves they made this offseason make sense to me. I think that there's still this, like, the real issue with the Mets, and it's kind of, like, strange because they're not a rebuilding team. They spent all this money. They have some good players. It's the same sort of problem that a team like the Orioles is going to have, which is, like, you can do certain stuff with the draft picks you have if you get them right. You can do some other stuff just by spending money. But at some point, the organization has to work if it's going to like fill in the rest of the roster. And that's the part of it. It's still like a depth thing. Like their Minor league teams are weird. They've drafted badly for so long as an organization that they're not... When you see, like, the reason the Dodgers have all these like great relievers that they just are constantly producing is that they don't draft those guys as relievers. They draft them as starters. It doesn't work out as a starter, and then their stuff plays up out of the bullpen. The Mets somehow have never done that. In, like, 10 years, they haven't done that. So some of their starters have hit, but the starters that they've drafted that didn't work just, like, are now all realtors. And none of them somehow became, like, 95 and a slider guys out of the bullpen. And so there's, like, there's still this sense where they're on the, the knife edge. Like, so if those expensive stars don't work there isn't like a tier of guys below them that they can sort of bring up that are fairly low cost and that are like sort of self replenishing. Maybe they start getting that right with a new approach to drafting, but that's like three years away, you know, coming off a lockout where the players pushed hard for owners to spend more money. How big of a deal is it that the A's and pirates are basically paying $7 for their entire roster this year? Yeah. It's both of those teams are, their entire rosters are being paid less this year than Max Scherzer is by the Mets. The whole 28-man that's going to start the season is going to be under $30 million. The A's especially are embarrassing, man. I mean, because that one, it, the speed with which they're getting rid of guys, like the days they traded Sean Manea to the Padres when they were playing the Padres in a spring training game, like they were trying to save $150 on a Southwest flight or something like that. It's just like, God, they really are at a level I've not seen them at before. The Pirates are one of those teams where they could sort of make an Orioles-y type case where they're, you know, like, we're two years away, why would we spend now? I think that's always stupid. I think it's stupid in the case of the Orioles. And I think with the Pirates, you know, if you were a fan of that team, like, why would you believe that they would ever spend? And why would you believe that it would be that different? Like, if and when they call up O'Neill Cruz, for instance, and he turns out to be the star that he looked like he was in spring training. And they're going to wait until, you know, there's a service time thing. The argument that not just the, the team was making, but that like people that write for the Pittsburgh newspapers were making, is why would you put this future star in the middle of the number 30 payroll? And I don't know that it makes that big a difference. You wait a year and it's the number 28 payroll. That's, they're not going higher than that. They never have. So at some point it becomes like a question of like, what are you allowed to want? You know, and as long as there's still teams like this in baseball, I don't think that the the broader problems that created you know, the lockout are, are really going to go away. You need these guys to try, and you know, you're still not really seeing it the way that you want to see it. Well, David, we saw the Brooklyn Nets clearly try in terms of 
adding everybody they did to this roster and it hasn't worked for various reasons. And yesterday yeah. Kevin Durant said that he blames it on himself because of his knee injury. Is that a leader just taking it on his shoulders or, or do you really believe Kevin Durant's injury derailed that team? I think it didn't help, but I, I mean, that's him covering for his buddy. Like if the team had Kyrie Irving playing in 80 games this year, this isn't a, as much of a problem. They'd still be roughly where they are now because like, the Nets without 100% Durant are not that good. But, I mean, I think that that's – I mean, it's to his credit, I guess. You know, I, I just feel like that's one of those things that, you know, you get to sort of accept as a sports fan is like every now and then a leader tells a really obvious lie and you're just supposed to be like, well, thanks for doing that. Like that's very uh, mature of you to do. I mean, to me that's – it's very obviously that. that like they – you know, we're playing without a guy who, when he's been healthy, Kyrie's been probably one of the, what, five or eight best players in the NBA this year. I mean, he's been as good as he's ever been. But, like, it's not, like, there's no reason other than, you know, the ones that everybody is by now pretty overly familiar with why he's played in, you know, 20-odd games. And, like, Durant knows that. They're buddies. Like, I, I guess it's good that he's covering for him, but I think that the answer's a little more obvious than Durant's health. Are you an East Coast elitist that complains about the start time of the national championship game? No, but I do a podcast with one. Uh, Drew basically <laughs> didn't watch any of the game last night. And it was like, he's got, uh, this is the thing, as someone who doesn't have a, a kid, I can still, like, you know, I can do things, you know, make the same dumb decisions I made when I was 28. I just, if I'm making really dumb decisions, then I'm like hungover for six days. In this case, I can watch a basketball game that starts at 9.20 because no one's going to wake me up at 6 in the morning to be like, I barfed. Whereas, like, Drew's got three kids that might very well do that, you know? But for me, like, I kind of like it. It was The weird part was that I was, you know, had a little bit of writing I wanted to do last night, and I was like, I'll just get to it after the game. And that means that you're just kind of, like, opening the laptop back up at 11.55 p.m. to be like, all right, well, let's knock out two hours of blogging. <laughs> Uh, which is fine, you know, whatever. I, I, because I was doing it in a sober way, I don't think I'm going to be um, hungover for six days, maybe just like two. All right. I'm, uh, I'm glad you got some midnight writing, and I guess it's not too early there when we call you and wake you up at 10.30. Did, what time did I, you wake is, up today? The thing is, I've probably been awake for less time today than you guys have. So that <laughs> is, uh, I, I don't even like to think about it. But you always sound so, uh, so peppy and fresh, given that it's right. 7.45 in the morning. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun to do this. Let's go. We get to talk to you and figure out if you got a dishwasher and if the Mets are actually going to be worth anything this year. Yeah, when you put it like that, it does seem kind of normal it to is. get up that early. We, I enjoy your misery to a degree. So, <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. yeah. Hey, that's that's what I'm here for, man. I'm happy to, to be of yeah. service always. He is David Roth from Defector. David, as always, we appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Have a good rest of your day. So there's David Roth from Defector. Uh, I've never met David in person. We talk to him every week. I am glad he is now learning that I enjoy other people's you're, misery. Yeah, you're a misery vampire. Yes, uh, that, is, that is exactly what I am. I enjoy when other people are sad. Uh, it's very fun. Coming up next, we're going to trust Adam Hill as the general manager of the Raiders. Did you? And here to present the trophy is the head of the basketball committee, Tom Burnett, to, to coach Seth in the Kansas City we're back to the press box with Grady and Bischoff featuring Adam Candy. 
That was Mark Emmert uh, handing over the national championship trophy to the Kansas City Jayhawks. Uh, should he have just rolled with it and not actually corrected himself, just handed it over to the Kansas City Jayhawks? Could there be anything more perfect than Mark Emmert, who somehow doesn't get the Gary Bettman treatment at the Final Four, <laughs> calling them the Kansas City Jayhawks? Like, a college president calling a college team by a professional name the irony is thick does he not get the gary bettman or any pro commissioner treatment because people don't know what he looks like absolutely because he's not out front the same way yeah right yeah yeah that's the only reason okay because there's not like a mark emirates state of the union press conference right before the postseason starts or anything like that where you you know what that guy looks like all the time i you just know the name more than you know the face hell i barely recognize him half the time but I know Mark Emmert's name, but I, if I saw him walking down the street, I probably wouldn't even think twice. Whereas I'd know that. Well, Adam Silver's a little more striking. He's a little bit more easy to recognize. You, but. you would, you would recognize Adam Silver because if you've ever seen Breaking Bad, he is a dead ringer for Gus Fring. Oh, I was going to go have, Slender Man. How tall is Adam Silver? I'm on it. Tall enough to be the commissioner of the NBA. <laughs> Right, I mean that was sort of the fatal flaw with David Stern. Rest in peace. But that's that's my favorite oh, thing wow. about UNLV basketball coaches over the last decade or so. Dave Rice was as tall as a lot of his players. Marvin Menzies and TJ Otzelberger had to look up at every single player they recruited because both of them very short, and especially Marvin Menzies, whose entire game plan was to get the tallest guys he could find and throw it into the post. <laughs> He loved last night's national championship game. He was like, that is how you do it. That is uh, what I want to see. That's how we ended up with Simbular in our lives, huh? <laughs> that is <laughs> I love you. Hey. So, did want to do a little bit of Raiders here because the lovely Adam Hill. Uh, is that the first time he's ever been called lovely? That's possible. And hopefully last. He did a mock draft for the Review Journal for the first round. And he traded, made a trade. For the Raiders to get back in the first round. He wrote in a draft day stunner. We predict the Raiders will ship star Darren Waller to the tight end needy Titans to get back into the first round. That would get them the 26th overall pick in the first round. Adam Hill then selected Nicobe Dean, a linebacker from Georgia. First off, do you think they could actually get a first round pick for Darren Waller? Yes, I do think they can get a first round pick okay. for Darren Waller. Do you think the Raiders would be better off with a first round pick or Darren Waller? This year's Raiders would be better yes. off with Darren Waller. The Raiders in three or four years would be far better off with the first round pick because what no one seems to be interested in considering with the Devontae Adams contract and the Derek Carr extension is that you're still going to have to pay Waller and Renfro, and the odds are you're probably not. Right, and that to me has been one of the main points here as to why I, I honestly think the Raiders should trade one of them. Now, you go trade for Devontae Adams, you bring in Chandler Jones, like they appear to be going for it this year, and it doesn't make sense to move either one of Hunter Renfro or Darren Waller uh, when you're going for it this year. But are you going to pay both of them? Are you going to sit back and say, we are paying our number two and number three receiving options, whatever the big contracts they are, because Hunter Renfro's got one year left on his rookie deal. Darren Waller has two years left. Uh, he signed, signed with a new agency. 
I assume we're one year, if he doesn't get an extension, we're one year away from Darren Waller being a holdout possibility for the Raiders. If you're the Raiders, and let's go with the assumption they, they can get a first-round pick, right? Because let's say they know they can get a first-round pick. If you don't intend on paying Darren Waller an extension, then you should absolutely trade him for a first-round pick. I, I think that would be a very smart decision for this team and go into next year with a good 1-2 instead of a good 1-2-3 receiving options there. I think there's a lot of sense in trading Darren Waller away. And you mentioned this year's team being better off with Darren Waller than a first-round draft pick. I think pending the position they went, I think there's a chance if they, if they, if they actually drafted a good offensive lineman in the first round, I think there's a chance that's more valuable than Darren Waller, given the state of their offensive line at the moment. Uh, yeah, I think you would be robbing Peter to pay Paul in some ways, though, because it, the reason that the Chiefs offense works the way that it does is because you have that option at tight end. Now, if you believe that Foster Moreau oh, he's can great. step Superstar. into a bigger role, then yeah, then maybe it doesn't hurt quite as badly because the difference between Foster Moreau and Darren Waller is going to be smaller than the difference between Alex Leatherwood and a trash can full of sand. <laughs> Come on. Come on, Adam. We still All have right, so we, we, we still have the, like a minute left does, in the segment. Does the, the trash can, does the trash can have wheels on it? Well, yeah, that would be the same as Alex Leatherwood because you can move the trash can full of sand a lot when it's on wheels. Uh, the thing is for the Raiders and this mock draft, I think the least realistic part is N'Kobe Dean being available at the end of the first round. I've seen him mock to the Giants at seven. <laughs> um, I My biggest takeaway from Adam Hill's mock draft had nothing to do with the actual picks, but the fact that the Raiders screwed over the media in Las Vegas because they traded away their first and second round picks for the draft that's in Las Vegas. And now when you're Adam Hill writing for the Las Vegas Review Journal, when you do a mock draft, you got to trade Darren Waller so people can look and see what the Raiders are doing in the first round. Otherwise, what you got to do a three-round mock draft just to get a Raiders pick in there. Okay, let's be honest, though. If you're Adam Hill and you are made to troll, like it is in your DNA, <laughs> you're absolutely trying to make Raiders fans mad trading Darren Waller. But you're doing it the smart way because it's totally a PFF defensible build this team the right way argument for how to do things with the Raiders. This was also, I believe, his first version, and I believe he'll do multiple more. I'm ready for the final version to include Derek Carr being traded. No, you know, come on. You know what the ultimate goal of this has to be. Trading Josh Jacobs. But you don't get, I mean, but if you're doing no, a No, I'm not saying you block, get anything good for Josh Jacobs. I'm saying nothing would make Raiders fans more upset than trading Josh Jacobs. There's a big part of the fan base would say, good, get rid of Carr. <laughs>